So let me uh, start by uh, claiming the promise in Acts 1.8 that uh, we shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. And as a result, we will be his witnesses from here to the end of the earth. That is true even as we meet now, as it will be for the rest of our days on this earth. Some reminders of, um, to you guys that I've, I've said before, and I'll continue to say it uh, for our book, uh, our series here of Revelation, and that is that Jesus is coming back. Uh, that much is clear, uh, especially even from this passage, and uh, we just need to be reminded of that. Um, second, uh, I hope you're reading these passages as we go through uh, this series, and that you are reading them, as I've said, as you would read a poem, or perhaps look at a painting. Uh, what I mean by this is that the ideas, images, concepts communicated in this book are not to be viewed linearly or chronologically in order. A poem or a painting or a work of art hits you all at once, and even over time, and then you close in on, you close in on the meaning of it over time. And even over a period of time when the experiences of life help you understand the poem or painting. So uh, it's like going back to the same poem or the same painting and look at it over again and seeing it's something new. You might discover something new. Revelation is very much like that. When you first read a poem or look at a piece of art, do you really understand everything about it? Some paintings and poems are easier to understand, some harder. The harder ones are obvious in their difficulty, but even the easier ones have deeper meanings that can be missed in the first time and need more reflection. Now, this is a difficult book. Uh, I think I've heard my mother say that several times already. It is confusing at times. Yes, it's difficult. It's confusing. Um, We are too. Confused at times. But it is God's word. And it's there for a reason. And it should be treated like any of the other books of the Bible with respect and without fear. Um, I was surprised to find I got a commentary on um, the book of Revelation. Ancient, and it's a series called Ancient Commentary. It's, a collection of all the writings that uh, from the first century to the medieval times and even uh, in the 11th or 12th century of commentators from the church fathers on the book of Revelation. And I was surprised in the introduction to find that the book of Revelation was the most read and studied book of all the books in the New Testament in the early days of the church. I don't know why, except maybe they thought Jesus was coming back tomorrow. So that is... Something we are following them in, uh, giving it a little bit of time here. So, it is a difficult book, and it's hard, and that's okay. Just because it's hard doesn't mean we should avoid it, though I do like to avoid hard things. Stephen uh, Crox said this week to David and I that uh, the book of Revelation is a... uh, is a, a very, very uh, strong book because it can walk and chew gum at the same time. And so that was his commentary on the book of Revelation. It can do two things at once. It was funnier when I heard that in the hallway here. Right? <laughs> but it was. It, it can walk and chew gum at the same time. It's that good. 
So though this book is confusing, take confidence, God is not confused by this book. Do you think he's confused by anything on here about the dragon? That 1290, 1260 days? Do you think? I don't think so. So I'll leave it to him to be not confused. Now this particular passage talks of wars and battles happening in, in the past and in the present and in the future. It speaks of multiple battlers that are not only individual beings, but also likely empires and principalities. And uh, we should keep that in mind. It's good and okay that images like this from the book of Revelation would have several layers of meaning. Um, it's a very Western thing to look for one meaning on a particular verse, in a particular passage. There are main meanings for things in the Bible, and especially in the book of Revelation. It's clear that this is talking about the enemy, Satan. But it's also, over the years, as I've read the commentaries, over the centuries, been interpreted as also reflective in empires, human empires, that have risen and fallen. The ones that have tried to take the place of God and have failed at that. And they will fail every time, even until the last empire that falls before Jesus' return. So with that, I will start uh, the formal. So my pastor in New York City would often say that every good story points to the greatest story. This quote is probably not original to him, but the truth of it still works. Good stories are the ones we resonate with, the ones that we go back to over and over again. Because there's something to them that is true to our lives and that hearkens to an even bigger reality. This truth may not be something we consciously understand in that moment. It's like seeing a beautiful sunset. When we see it, we see something so beautiful and huge in nature that we are overwhelmed, almost to the point of what feels like disbelief. Some call that awe. And though we may feel small and insignificant courting that disbelief in the face of it, we are still seeing it. We're still seeing that beautiful, overwhelming sunset with our eyes. That is when the good story is pointing to the greatest story. When something in it makes us feel smaller and makes us sense that something very important is going on or being said here. That's when the good stories are pointing to the greatest story. This idea is echoed in the words of Peter and John in Acts when after being brought before the Sanhedrin to be judged, they said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, it may be hard to believe. You may not want to believe. But Peter and John's eyes and ears said otherwise. Good stories invite us to that same path to the greatest story. This passage in Revelation 12 is a descriptive account of the greatest story. The life, death, resurrection, and subsequent return of Jesus of Nazareth the Christ. When I was reflecting on the passage, what came immediately to my mind was the image and story of St. George and the Dragon. This is a story that is as old as the 11th century. It could be older. It is a story of a respected soldier, a Christian, who comes upon a village that had been sacrificing animals to a dragon that had been terrorizing their village. When the supply of animals ran out, the dragon demanded that the children of the village be sacrificed. That's very severe and scary. But when a beloved young princess was chosen to be sacrificed, George, the brave soldier, went to face the dragon, defeated it in battle, and saved the princess and the village. 
hear a little bit of the good story. In Revelation 12, we see the echo of the good story pointing to the greatest story. We see George and the dragon brought forth in the telling of the final chapter of the greatest story. I have uh, was read, read this book. I commend it to you. I gave a copy to Lena for her family, for her and her family. St. George and the Dragon, a very cool telling, a retelling of St. George and the Dragon about how to face the enemy with courage in Christ. So, it's, uh, I commend it to you. Also, just for anybody who wishes, because uh, I did it mainly for the children, but then I told, when I told Kim that I was bringing things to color for the kids for the sermon, he asked, just for the kids? Mm-hmm. So, we have pictures and prints, old school prints of images of Michael taking on the dragon and St. George taking on the dragon, if you wish. I believe they're over here with the crosses table. Feel free. In this passage, I want to touch on two things. The presence of evil and then prevailing over evil. Let's take each of these. The presence of evil. It's should be evident to all of us by now after we've reached 12 through been through 12 chapters in revelation that evil exists in our world whether passively whether it's just there as a condition or actively uh, happening on our cho- chosen on our part evil is present we see it early on in the book of Revelation, in the letters to the seven churches, in chapter 2 and 3, we see both evils. Passive, what I mean by passive here is acts not chosen. We didn't choose it, it happened to us. So we kind of are the victims of it. There's that kind of evil. And then there's the active evil, which is we choose it. We see passive impacts of evil like in chapter 2, verse 2 of Revelation, uh, to the uh, letter to the church of Ephesus. Where Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. So there's a passive, a little bit of passive evil. It's present. Or in chapter 2, verse 13, to the church of Pergamon, Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So... They, were re- they had the evil, those churches, thrust upon them at times. Enduring it, toiling through it, actually seeing the severity of having one of their members killed. But even these same churches who experienced evil under duress, they also at times chose evil ways. They made poor choices. In chapter 2, verse 4 to Ephesus, Jesus says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've chosen poorly. Go back to your first love, Jesus saying. Then in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, to the church of Laodicea, Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. They were choosing poorly. So both those forms of darkness come upon us. We choose it at times, and sometimes it chooses us and happens to us. Neither of these evils are preferred. One we have no control over, the evil that finds us. The other we do, the twistedness we choose to do. There are dark things happening to you right now. Things you have no control over. My encouragement to you would be to pray 
and invite others in our community to join you in prayer for these things. As you do, remember the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians when he wrote about being given a thorn in the flesh. He writes in 12, 7 through 9 this, A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So, pray and seek the Lord if things are happening to you. But are you also choosing dark things, things you suspect or know that are not of Christ? I plead with you to repent. Confess them to a brother or sister here in our community and seek assistance in stopping those choices. There's no condemnation here in my words. Please hear me. Why? Because the condemnation has already fallen on Jesus. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Paul writes in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And later in the same chapter, Paul writes in verses 33 and 4, 34 of Romans 8, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who justifies? It is God who justifies. Who is to, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. He was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If God does not condemn, how should anyone in Christ do the same? So pray and repent, brothers and sisters. If you are choosing dark things, we are here to assist with both. Evil is also present in that it's both physical and spiritual. We need only look at the world and see how darkness expresses itself in physical spaces and ways. The destruction of weather and disease, the hypocritical choices of people with power and influence, addiction, depression, suicide, and murder. Of course, we, the list could be long. We also experience these very things personally. It does not happen out there all the time to other people. We see it as well. It is something that gets up in our grills, as the saying goes. But here in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 17, this vision is mostly about the spiritual unseen realm where beings of other dimensional authority preside. There are vignettes of the physical in these verses, but it is predominantly spiritual. Please note that just because I say it's mostly spiritual does not, I think, uh, say that it's mostly spiritual um, does not mean that it is not real. Um... And I, we only need look at the Old Testament and the history of Israel to see where people are... Oh, gosh, my, excuse me a minute here. I think my notes got switched up. Hold on. Okay, I think I got something wrong here. <laughs> I'll keep going. Just because I say it's mostly uh, spiritual does not mean it's not real. <laughs> spiritual things are real just as much as physical things are real. We must remember that. So, uh, sorry, I think there was a portion of here that got, all right. So let's take a closer look here at chapter 12. We see where the devil is making active physical war upon God's people and upon the offspring of the woman. Look in verse 7. 
make sure that I had this. Sorry. There we go. Look in verse 7. It says, War arose. Later on in verse 7, it says, The dragon and his angels fought back. Then you see in verse 12, But woe to the earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. We see pursuit happening here. Verse 13, He pursued the woman. Verse 15, The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away in the flood. We see here where the devil is excessive and relentless in his pursuit. And then in verse 17, it says the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with her and the rest of her offspring. We need only look, and I agree with last week when Buzzy did the sermon, he said he believed this woman was Israel. And I tend to agree with that because we need only look at the Old Testament and the history of Israel to see that they were a people pursued, warred against, enslaved, exiled. And this is not only because of their own poor choices, that is also evident there, but it's also because they were the woman of Revelation 12. They were the target of the dragon. And this title of being the woman was passed along to the church after the time of Christ. As it is noted in verse 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Christians are the most persecuted religion in the world today. At least according to some of the research that I've read. Two more uh, bits of, about the Old Testament and the overlap of the spiritual and physical reality. First, you see in Daniel 10, 13, it says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to me to help me, for I was left there with the king of Persia. The angel sent to Daniel with a message in response to Daniel's prayers would have been there 21 days earlier had he not been delayed by the prince of Persia and assisted by the Michael the archangel. So we see here again how the presence of evil is both spiritual and physical. We don't know the exact nature of the physical resistance, but it was associated with the empire of Persia. And there was a demonic presence there that was delaying the messenger God sent to Daniel when he said, I need something, Daniel. And that's what this angel said to him. It was delayed 21 days, then Michael came to help me, and I came to answer your prayer. So there is a close relationship between the physical and the spiritual. Second piece of evidence is in 2 Kings 6, there is an account of the king of Syria finding out that the Israelite prophet Elijah had been getting inside information from God about his military movements and telling Israel's rulers, thus avoiding conflict. The Syrian king wanted to know how this was happening, and one of the king's attendants, one of the Syrian king's attendants, told him about Elijah and then and what city Elijah was in. So this Syrian king sends an army to surround that city to destroy Elijah and his people. When one of Elijah's servants woke up and went out and saw the Syrian army surrounding the city, he ran back to tell Elijah in in fright. And the passage goes like this. When the servant of the man of God, that's Elijah, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? In other words, (laughs) we're done for. 
But he, Elijah, said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. And what did he see? He saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. See the physical and the spiritual there. The servant didn't have eyes to see the spiritual armies that were with Elijah. Elijah saw them, which is why he was not afraid. I'll leave the rest of the story to that, which is very fascinating, actually. It doesn't go the way you would think as army versus army, but I'll leave the rest of that story in 2 Kings 6 for you to read. But that use that as an example of the overlap of the spiritual and physical worlds. And things haven't changed here today. In fact, they've gotten worse here in the West. Whatever veil that was between the spiritual world and the physical world in the West has been crumbling in the last few decades as we've seen an increase of interest in the occult as well as more and more people believing, uh, not believing in a transcendent God. We now live in a fully neo-pagan culture. The space between the spiritual and physical world is thinning. We need to know about it and we need to know about it without fear. How should we know about this then? How should we think about it? It's very hard for us in the West, even as Christians who, who delve into the spiritual, especially from scriptures, how should we know about this uh, spiritual world and physical world interaction? I think, a great, I think of a great line from C.S. Lewis in his book, From the Screwtape Letters, which is a book about a head demon writing to his nephew demon on how to work with his patient, the human being, Lewis wrote this in the preface of the first published edition of the book. He said, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, the human race, can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They, the devils themselves, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. How should we look at and know these things? With wisdom and, and security. Not overly looking at it, not denying, that they, uh, not denying that they exist like the materialist would, and not believing them overly so like a magician would, but seeking to take power and use it from them. Let us also take courage from the words of Paul in Ephesians 6, verse 12 where he said, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. How should we approach this spiritual activity without fear? That leads me to the second point. Prevailing. We had the presence of evil. We see it both present spiritually and physically, especially in this passage. War arises. Angels are sent in to fight. This is also reflected in empires, much like the Prince of Persia and Daniel. But now we look at prevailing over evil. How do we prevail over evil? We have hope and therefore no fear because the enemy is defeated, even now. Let me make a few observations about this. It says in verse 7 through 9, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, 
and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. In this passage, we see the defeat of the dragon and his posse by Michael and his. The forces of good won a battle, but not the war. The battle drove the enemy to the earth. That is where the language of thrown down comes from and why it's used. John is doing something very clear here. He is making a connection between Revelation 12 and Genesis 3. Buzzy referred to this last week, but it bears repeating because it's clearer here. In Genesis 3, we have the curse of God issued to the serpent. Serpent, perhaps a dragon. After the fall of Adam and Eve. Isn't it interesting that God says in the curse to the serpent that he will eat dust for the rest of his existence? He's thrown to the ground in the curse. Just like John says here in Revelation 12 that in the battle against Michael and his army, the devil and his army are thrown down to the earth. The word for earth in Revelation 12 means soil. And the word in Genesis 3 used for dust also means dry earth. Now notice in Genesis 3 that God not only says the serpent will eat dust, but he gives further information about the curse. God says there will be enmity. There will be enemies between the woman's offspring and the serpent. Verse 15, Genesis 3. I will put enmity enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now look at Revelation 12, verse 13. He, the dragon, pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, her and her offspring. Verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood, pursued of the woman. Verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. Does this sound like it's echoing something from Genesis 3? Seems like there's a lot of enmity between the woman and her offspring and the dragon. Could we say that started since Genesis 3? I think we could. But let's look at the curse of the serpent further. Look at the last stanza of Genesis 3. He shall bruise your head and you you shall bruise his heel. A specific he will kill the dragon and serpent while the dragon and serpent merely wounds the specific he. Now look at Revelation 12, 10. Again, starting with verse 10. Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down to the earth, who accuses them day and night before the God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Notice shed blood conquers the dragon. He will bruise your head. A fatal blow, you will bruise his heel, a recoverable wound. God was showing again his victory over the enemy. He prevailed. Another interesting observation about God prevailing over evil, and this one is connected to the specific he in Genesis, is referenced by John in Revelation. Now stay with me on this one. This observation isn't as apparent. The ones I just shared are very are pretty clear in that passage where the devil is defeated and thrown down by the power of the blood of the Lamb, Jesus. But this one is not as apparent, but it's just as powerful. 
The context of our passage this morning is the first six verses of chapter 12, which Buzzy did last week. And that context gives us more evidence of God prevailing here. Verse 1 of chapter 12 says this, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, why would John say a sign in heaven happened if he was already in heaven? I mean, these are visions of John being in heaven. He's also on earth at times. But at the end of the previous chapter, he was describing God's throne room. So he goes from being in God's throne room to suddenly seeing a sign in heaven. Maybe he was looking out the window of God's throne room. Thank you for... That, was, that was felt good. What John is probably referring to here is an astronomical constellation. I think he's having a vision from the earth. So think about this. In the first century, believers would have probably thought and known more about astronomy than we would. Can we think of anybody in the story of the gospel of a group of people that had a lot of knowledge about astronomy? Anybody? I'm sorry? No, not the shepherds. Wise men. They came from the east, right? They saw the sign in heaven. So if we thought like first century believers, we would probably know a little bit more about the movement of constellations in the sky and their signs in heaven. So this great sign in the sky was probably a constellation. The constellation of a woman is, is normally in astronomy. Now, this is in astrology. There is a difference. They've been too wedded in our modern world. So I am not talking about astrology. I'm talking about stars moving in the heavens. I'm talking about what they've assigned for millennia to these shapes of the stars. Well, the woman in the sky is usually called Virgo. She's also called the Virgin. And what would happen is, as Virgo is going through the, sun, the sky, everyone in that same sky, the sun and the moon, are also moving through the constellations. So when John says he saw a great sign, he could all, he's also probably referencing a constellation of Virgo, where he says she was clothed in the sun with the moon at her feet. Now... I was reading Michael Heiser's book about this constellation. He says there is a 20-day period every year when the sun is in the midsection of Virgo. So when Virgo is going through the sky and the sun is going up, when the sun is in her body area, that she would be clothed. She's got a clothed in the sun, in the sky. That's for 20 days in the year. That's pretty amazing. It happens in September. I found that out recently. But then Heiser goes on to point out, and quoting other scholars on this, that when you have Virgo with the sun, clothed in the sun, and her moon at her feet, that only happens for 90 minutes in any given year. But we haven't even talked about the crown and then the dragon. <laughs> when you line up the dragon with the constellation, 
I think it's certainly possible that the Magi saw these very signs and thought, there's a king going to be born someday. So imagine John is referencing this as the setup for this fight between the woman and her offspring and the dragon and his, his followers. He is saying a son is coming, the ultimate offspring, the specific he. Because if the son is clothing Virgo for only 20 days of the year, that narrows it down. And if it's clothing Virgo and also has the moon at her feet for only 90 minutes a day, that narrows down the timing of that one as well. This is very interesting stuff. And I, again, commend it to you. And if you have more questions about it, I'd be glad to try and answer them as I can. What Heiser goes on to say is that when you add the moon to the feet, you go from a 20-day period to a 90-minute period. What I'm saying is that God communicated through signs in the sky or the heavens that he would prevail over the enemy. He would, in fact, plan the arrival of a specific he referred to in Genesis 3. If he did it for the Magi, he can do it for us. If you don't find encouragement in these observations about God prevailing over uh, evil, how about this one? The last line in the Song of the Angels in verses 10 to 12. The end of verse 12 says this, because he knows that his time is short. Short for what? His end. The devil knows his end is coming. Why is it ending for him? Because the woman he pursued and continues to pursue in wrath has already given birth to the male child. And that child is the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And he shed his blood, uh, and, he shed, and his shed blood, what the angels sang about in this passage, is what conquers the enemy. <clears throat> Take courage, brothers and sisters. We, like St. George, need not fear the enemy, the dragon. We don't need to fear what we may face as our culture drifts more and more into paganism. Jesus is coming back to end the devil's short time that he has left. And with that, I will pray. Jesus, thank you for uh, coming. Thank you for saying pretty clearly that the dragon is defeated, has been defeated, is currently in a condition of defeat, and his time is short where that ultimate uh, victory will happen that day that the sky gets rolled back like like a scroll. And you return and complete the job that was done on Calvary. I pray, Lord, for wisdom for me and my brothers and sisters here as we face more and more of these things in our culture. Where the devil and his fellow angels will undermine will try their best to destroy the offspring of the woman, the offspring of Israel, the offspring of the church, until that day when you will collect us all, your family, and we will be with you in heaven, singing the same praises that the angels were praising you with in this chapter in Revelation 12. Thank you. I pray this all in your name. Amen. Okay.